You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Translating knowledge from bedside to bench and back again is the holy grail for all medical professionals, scientists, and physicians. Scientists that work with physicians and think of the ideas are the transport vehicle. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, Department of Radiology, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, and the Department of Radiology and Radiological Sciences, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gimme is a Partnership for Cures pilot grant recipient. Dr. Gimme and I are discussing his choice to pursue a career in scientific research. Dr. Gimme, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Dr. Bloom. So what's life like for a research scientist? How's your week split up? What administrative and teaching responsibilities do you have, and when do you do your research? Well, the best aspect of it, of course, is that I do not feel like I'm going to work, but I'm just going to do something that I enjoy. And the good spells are when I get very irritated that the day is coming to an end and I have to sleep for a few hours, can't wait for the next morning to roll around. But of course, that's not always the case. I do oversee students. I oversee graduate students and postdocs and research assistants. So interacting with very creative people is very, very motivating indeed and highly invigorating. In terms of administrative duties, I suppose, fortunately, they take up a fairly small amount of my time and most of my time is devoted to research. So although sometimes they are in the way, but Typically, they help me hone my thoughts. So, For those of us that don't spend our time in an academic medical center or doing research, tell us at the different levels. You mentioned grad students, postdocs, PhDs. What's the sort of passage that people go through? Well, clearly, at the graduate student level, you need to train them to think in terms of hypotheses, testing, and so on and so forth, whereas by the time that the postdoctoral level it gets more of a matter of just inspiring them and, and finding meaningful projects for them. If, if they can't come up with some of their own. Do you start and get a master's degree? Do you go to a PhD? And how long do you do a postdoc for? Typically, about three years is as long as people do postdocs in scientific research. But there is certainly a large curve on that. I sometimes hear the term fellowship. Is that something you do as a postdoctorate? Before you get your doctorate, when do you do a fellowship? A fellowship would be a postdoctoral fellowship. So, yeah, you would do it after your PhD. And where did you do your PhD? I did mine at the University of Illinois. And what was your thesis? What were you working on at the time? I looked at doing magnetic resonance microscopy of pancreatic islets, looking at activation-based contrast uptake in islets. Okay. So for somebody that doesn't understand any of what you just said, could you explain that a little bit so that I'm clear on what that was like? Sure. So we were doing MRI where we were looking at individual islets, which is fairly difficult to do unless you do very high-resolution MRI. So we were looking at individual islets, and we were looking at their contrast and and using that contrast to determine how functional these islets were. And what did we learn from that research? Well, essentially that there were non-invasive methods. It was a proof of principle that there were non-invasive methods to look at islet functionality. And this would be very impactful if we could look at a human being non-invasively with MRI and determine their functioning beta cell mass. So determine whether 100% of the islets were working or whether 40% of them were working and what the time course of that degeneration was. 
So we would know if there were interventions that we could use. So you finished at the University of Illinois, and then you went to do your postdoc work. Where did you do that? I went to the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And what were you focused on there? Most of my work there was based on cancer research. So I was looking at vascular volume and permeability in tumors, and we were looking at anti-tumor drugs, their therapeutic efficacy and non-invasive ways of measuring that. And I also stayed with my focus of magnetic resonance microscopy and of microfabrication and nanofabrication techniques. And that's where I first started off with the idea of doing MR microscopy and cell encapsulation therapy. So that was the first time you thought of the two things together and how they might work together to bring a cell-based therapy to patients. Yes, essentially to encapsulate cells, but also then to be able to visualize them to see how they're functioning. Because if we don't know how they're working, we might put them in the body and if the patient isn't getting better, we don't know whether it's because the cells are encapsulated poorly or they're not functioning or they're in the wrong place. So you're saying you can use this as a way of helping us figure out the best way to do this. Correct, because the way efficacy is looked at is typically through biomarkers in the blood. So that does not necessarily inform you of much very often. And so if you were to put in islets, for instance, and only 20% of those islets were working, or say only 5% of those islets were functional, you would still be somewhat normal glycemic or euglycemic, but that doesn't mean that you have all your islets working, and it would be very beneficial to know how many of them are not working and what is the time course of them dropping off. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. And I am speaking with Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, about his cell-based therapy research and about being a scientific researcher. So do you spend a lot of time working with physicians since you're doing therapy that ultimately is supposed to benefit patients? Indeed, I do. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to be a co-investigator on in a clinical research grant and a multi-site clinical research grant. And that certainly informs me as to some of the time and financial pressures of how things are done in the clinic as well. That fundamentally changes how you approach the research problem because you do not have the kind of luxury of imaging time and so on that you might have with animal models. So the approach dramatically changes, and the sequences that you use to perform the imaging dramatically changes. So tell us a little bit about this research project that you're working on with the physicians. We're looking at acute lymphocytic leukemia in children, and we're seeing whether chemotherapy actually creates broad neurodegenerative disorders. So we're looking at neurotoxicity in kids with ALL. And... What are you seeing? So we're looking at diffusion tensor imaging as an imaging modality. So we look at diffusion along the white matter fibers in the brain. And typically, the diffusion is in the direction of the white matter fibers. The predominance of it is. And so when there's degeneration, you see a drop in that. And that is essentially what we're measuring to see if the chemotherapy is having this kind of effect on white matter fibers. And what's the clinical manifestation of this in these children if you find that this is true? Then we'd have to change the dose of the drug that we're using. So both the therapy and the dosing would change to keep it at a subtoxic level. And what kind of clinical problems do these kids have when they're on the chemotherapy? Well, we're in the early stages of the study. So we're trying to figure out what some of these effects are. And so there's a battery of cognitive neuropsychological testing going on as well, and as well as gene testing and so on. How do you get funded for this research? Do you get paid a salary by the university? Do you only get paid if you get a research grant? How does your 
financial life were? We certainly get paid a salary from the university, and some of that salary then gets offset. So the university doesn't have to pay for it if I get a research grant and I secure some funding for myself. And that's where I stand right now. Almost all of my salary comes in from my grants. And so I can support myself, and I can also support a number of students and postdocs and so on. How many people are in your lab altogether? There are about five at the moment, but they're not all entirely dedicated to one project or one study. So I say this cautiously because I have essentially, say, 25% of a postdoc and 50% of a graduate student's effort and so on. And then they spend their other time working with somebody else on a different project? In the case of the students, they work with my collaborators, but on different aspects of the same project. Whereas in the case of a postdoctoral fellow, I do share with other projects. So other investigators on other projects. And do you have your own lab? Do you have the Gimme Lab now at UT Southwestern? Yes, fortunately, I do have some space. And finally, we're up and running. And how big a space is this? It's uh, probably a couple of hundred square feet at, at the moment, but we're trying to expand and we're just making sure that we have all the right conditions. So we want a very sterile condi- uh, area for cell culture and so on and so forth. So they're putting in all those pieces in place. Okay, so you're assistant professor now. So again, take us through what's the next step and what's your ultimate goal and where would you like to be? That depends on, I suppose, geographically, it's not that important, but it certainly depends on where both my wife and I would get our fair opportunities. And so we'll, we'll be exploring that. And any place where we can continue to do research and, and hopefully translational research where we can make an impact. Do people at the assistant professor level typically stay at the institution they're at and move up the sort of corporate ladder or do they move to another institution? Is it like a baseball team where somebody wants you there and you get pulled off to Baylor or uh, University of Washington or whatever needs somebody with your skills? Sure. It, It certainly does work that way as well, but I've been very fortunate at UT Southwestern where I have a very supportive chair and and they seem to be very supportive of my work and eager to have me. So at the moment, I'm certainly very happy over that. But There are always opportunities that present themselves, but I've had no occasion to accept any of those at the moment. And you said your wife is also a researcher? She's a researcher, but she's, fortunately for me, also a physician. Oh, so you get that collaboration at home as well. Yes, yes. So we have many conversations over trips and dinners and so on. Is that usual in scientific research that both people are involved in that, or is it just as likely that your spouse might be a school teacher or a truck driver or a CEO of some corporation? I don't know that it is predominant, but it's certainly not very unusual. I know of several couples that are essentially in the same field and a few couples that actually even do the same work. So so they collaborate very closely and work on the same disease model and so on. As far as funding goes, you said you're pretty much fully funded now. Is that unusual for somebody at your level? Are the funding issues changing these days? Regrettably, it's becoming very, very competitive and very tough. And I think that I've just been extremely fortunate. I received some seed money from the Partnership for Cures to start some of this project. And I was able to leverage it for NIH grants and for JDRF grants. And I've also been involved with physicians. So that has provided me an opportunity to be a co-investigator as a scientist and have a co-investigator physician on uh, on a grant that we've been working on. So So how many years have you been working sort of in in this area? Well, in the area of MR microscopy, I've, I've been doing this for about seven years. In cell encapsulation and therapy, I would say probably around four. And so if you were starting out right now and needed to go get your first set of grants, do you think it would be harder than it was 
five, six, seven years ago? I'm not sure I'm entirely qualified to answer that because I've only been on the faculty for about a year and a half. So before that, I certainly helped out an awful lot with grants, and I helped senior investigators write grants, and all of those grants were funded. And so I never experienced a period where it was very, very difficult or tight, but I, I'm, I'm aware that many of my colleagues have. And so today, the funding environment is very tough, and it is, especially with NIH grants, there's a precipitous drop. But at the same time, I think they're now beginning to skew that toward younger investigators to provide that kind of opportunity. I want to thank Dr. Barjor Gimme of the UT Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas for sharing his research journey with us. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs and other existing therapies. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.